Okay, let's begin. Um, topic is themes of Rosh Hashanah. So, let's begin with the following observation that the Torah says very little about Rosh Hashanah. In fact, Rosh Hashanah is only mentioned in two places in the Torah. And in those two places, we have very little said. The first is, of course, in the list of the holidays, the book of Ayikra, chapter 23, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 23 of Ayikra. And there, what the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah is, in this translation on page 261, chapter 23, verse number 23, by Deberashem so the Torah says in these verses that Moshe should tell the people, it's the list of the holidays, that in the seventh month, the first day of the month, will be a Shabbaton, a day of cessation from work. Zichron Shuah Mikra Kodesh. The Torah calls it a Zichron Shuah. The question is, what does the word Zichron mean? Does, it, does Zichron mean a remembrance? Or Zichron means a the word we haskir, a statement of, a, a declaration of, zichron shuah. Here the translation says, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. But that's hard to say. That's, I, I just, that, certainly that's a possible translation, but it sounds like an unlikely one. Zich, any, in any event, the Torah calls it a zichron shuah, and no work is to be done. And you bring a sacrifice. That's what the Torah says. Very brief in chapter 23 of Ayikra. And then in the second place, which is the list of the days in which we bring an additional sacrifice, Musaf, which is found in uh, the book of Bamidbar, there the Torah doesn't say too much more. It lists the various days that have sacrifices. And when it comes to the seventh month in chapter 29 of Bamidbar, verse 1, there the Torah says on the seventh month, first day, shall be a mikra kodesh, a holy day, a sacred, con- sacred uh, occasion, and no work is to be done. Verse number one of chapter 29 of Amidbar. And then the Torah says, Yom Shua Yerachem, a Yom Shua, a day of Trua. So it's not clear what the Torah means, a day of Trua. What does this mean? One thing that is interesting, what the Torah doesn't say, and a word that doesn't appear at all in either place, is the word shofar. The Torah says nothing about a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The Karaites said there was no shofar. The Yom Shua doesn't mean shofar, a day of crying out, whatever that means. But certainly it says nothing explicitly in the text about a shofar. That's for sure. So it's a holiday which I would say, more than any other, in which the rabbinic tradition, our tradition, plays a very central role. This is evidenced by, in, in, in a, actually, in a very interesting way as well, an additional way, which is this. On all the holidays, we have Torah readings. The Torah readings are always reading something about the holiday from the Torah, without exception, or with one exception, which is Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, the Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah, and we observe two days Rosh Hashanah, half of hundreds of years, but the, both Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah do not mention Rosh Hashanah at all. In fact, they take it from Sefer Breshit. The first day's reading is Hashem Fakadat Sarah, chapter 21, the birth of Isaac. 
and the banishment of Yishmael. And the second day's Torah reading is the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak. Those are the two chosen readings for Rosh Hashanah, and neither one mentions Rosh Hashanah at all. It's unlike any other holiday that we have, and the simple reason is that there isn't too much to read about in Rosh Hashanah. It's exactly these two places, a few verses. So the tradition uh, has chosen other texts which they see as related somehow to Rosh Hashanah. So before we get into some of the ways in which the, our tradition has understood Rosh Hashanah, it would be, I think, important just to reflect upon what the, what the Torah actually says about Rosh Hashanah, which is very little, but it says something. In one place it's Zichron Shua, in the second place it's Yom Shua Yerachem. And in each case, it's the festival observed in the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. So what actually in the Pshat is Rosh Hashanah? So I have a, a modest suggestion to make about what Rosh Hashanah means in the Chumash, which is this. I think in Rosh Hashanah, in the Chumash, in the simple reading of the Chumash, that what Rosh Hashanah signifies, the significance of Rosh Hashanah, and this is actually evidenced in, uh, very clear in the book of Vayikra. The book of Vayikra, in which the holidays figure in the 20, uh, 23rd chapter, book of Ayikra. So we have the, in the holidays, they begin with this Sabbath, Shabbat. This is the holy, the seventh day, the holy day. And then we have, in the book of Ayikra, we also have in this list, we have the holiday of Shavuot. The other Torah says, you shall count seven weeks. Seven times seven. And the 50th is the holy day of Shavuot. And the parallel Two chapters later, in the Chumash, is the counting of the seven years. The sabbatical year is the Shemitah, which is chapter 25 of Ayikra, two chapters later. There you count seven years, and the 50th year, the Jubilee, is the special year. Shavuot, on the level of weeks, is parallel in the book of Ayikra to the Jubilee, the Shemitah and the Yovel, which is the years. So we have the Holy, the Sabbath itself is the Holy day, the seventh day, and then we have the Shemitah, the seventh year, and then we have the seven times seven, and we have the seven weeks, the festival of weeks, Shavuot. The only thing that's missing is the seventh month, and that's exactly what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is the seventh month. The seventh month is the holy month, and the reason it's a special month is because it, has, it contains within it two very important festivals, the first of which is Yom Kippur which is the 10th day, which in a certain sense seems to be the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the year, or the beginning, sorry, the beginning of the month. The sabbatical, the, the jubilee year is ushered in by Yom Kippur. The, 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 the Yovel, the shofar is sounded, that's where we have shofar. The shofar is sounded in the, in the jubilee year, in the 50th year on uh, Yom Kippur. The seventh month has two very important festivals in it. One is Yom Kippur, the festival of Inui, the festival of atonement, forgiveness, atonement, purification, purification of the temple, purification of the people. And that's followed by a great festival in the Torah, one might argue the main festival in the Torah, the Torah calls it a Chag, which is the holiday we call Sukkot. The festival of Sukkot is the great rejoicing festival which we rejoice, Ach Sameach, and you have the Sukkah, you have the Dalad Minim, and you have Hakel, the gathering together every seven years on Sukkot to read the Torah. So this seventh month, the sacred month, is ushered in in the Chumash 
by the sounding, by the crying out, zichron shua, by the crying out, or perhaps by the sounding of some kind of, making some kind of sound, maybe shofar, but whatever it is. So the significance of Rosh Hashanah then is it, organ, it ushers in these, these, this month. And I would add to this that the rabbinic understanding, I think, or a rabbinic understanding, which is, it's plenty of room, by the way, is this, this, that our tradition, I think, reads into Rosh Hashanah. In other words, what is the nature of Rosh Hashanah? It's a strange holiday. We'll get to this. But Rosh Hashanah, I would say, has two different aspects to it. One aspect of Rosh Hashanah is it is a, it is a, a festival. If it's a festival, it's a day of joy. But perhaps the joy is not the same as the three festivals in which we make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which are temple-centered. But the holiday of Rosh Hashanah is a day of joy. The verse in Ezra and Nehemiah, we remember, where the people were very sad after returning from exile. And it said in the seventh month of the first day of the seventh month, so Ezra says to them, do not be sad. But rather rejoice, give gifts to your friends, to those who don't have. Chedvat Hashem himo'uzchem, your strength lies in joy, in happiness. And that takes place, we're told, in the seventh month of the first day, which we call Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah, from one perspective, is a day of joy. One might say it is the holiday which prefigures or inaugurates or calls or recalls for us the festival of Sukkot. Just a couple of weeks later, we have the festival of Sukkot, the middle of the month, the full moon. So that's one element of Rosh Hashanah, it's a day of joy. But the other aspect of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a day which also reminds us of, uh, of uh, Yom Kippur. In our tradition, we call this Aseret Yemei Tshuva. So Rosh Hashanah already in, in recalling, in, 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 in announcing the seventh month, what is this month? It's a month that has two holidays. It has Sukkot, the ultimate joy, Ach but it also has the day of Inui, self-affliction in the Torah, purification, atonement, fasting. So that's also part of Rosh Hashanah. So therein lies the anomalous nature of Rosh Hashanah, that on one hand, it partakes of the festival of Sukkot, on the other hand, it partakes of the festival or the observance of, of Yom Kippur, and perhaps that part of what makes Rosh Hashanah different. But in terms of, one can read in the Torah already this sense of Rosh Hashanah as having this dual quality in the sense that it, it is announcing and perhaps partaking of the two main festivals. But so the, I, I think the pshat in the Chumash, the simple pshat, is that what Rosh Hashanah does is it simply proclaims the uh, seventh month, the special month, the seventh month. Are you saying that Rosh Hashanah has an element of the and suffering? Yes, I'm saying that Rosh Hashanah is already, in one way or another, partaking of, in some sense, Yom Kippur, and also partaking of Sukkot. I think on the level of, on the level of Pshat and the Chumash, one can read that in. I think on the basic Pshat, it simply announces the month. What makes it special is it's an announcement of the month. The same way the Yovel announces the 50th year. You, 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 yeah. No, no doubt. That's a very excellent point. It's an excellent point. I'll just repeat it. And that was, what's interesting about Masechet Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnayis of Rosh Hashanah, is that most of Masechet Rosh Hashanah, maybe half of it, deals with, not with Rosh Hashanah, but with Rosh Chodesh, 
which would certainly support the idea that the way the Mishnah understands Rosh Hashanah, it is the, 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 the ultimate Rosh Chodesh. But fundamentally, it functions as a kind of Rosh Chodesh, which is the, the, the sense you get in studying the Mishnayot of Rosh Hashanah, which would fully support, I think, this idea that in the Chumash, what Rosh Hashanah is, is it's an announcement of this special month. Unlike the other months, this is the seventh month, this is a special month. Now, that's, to, to, that's number one. Number two, before we get to some of these details of the themes of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, what's striking is that it's what the Torah does never say about Rosh Hashanah, it never mentions the word shofar. So, the rabbinic understanding, obviously, is that the zichron trua, the trua of Rosh Hashanah, is, is to, re, to pronounce or to announce it. The, the, the thing we're doing is to sound, to make a sound with, this, with, the, with the shofar. The Torah never says shofar, but the understanding is that it's shofar. Shofar is found elsewhere in the Chumash. It's not found with Rosh Hashanah, but it is found in two other places. It's found, first of all, in the verses that describe Matan Torah, at Sinai, in the revelation of Sinai, there was a shofar. That the Torah says explicitly, and we make mention of this in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah as well. In the section we call Shofarot, the first verses talk about Har Sinai. The experience of Sinai, God's presence, which was uh, manifest at Sinai and is, uh, and is represented, one might say, this presence is represented by the, by the shofar, the sounds of the shofar. And the other place we have shofar is in the Jubilee year, shofar trua, which is there you have a, uh, a, the Yovel, the Jubilee year, there the Torah mentions the shofar as well. The rabbinic exegesis somehow imports from those other places in some way tries to read in to Rosh Hashanah the shofar that we have at Sinai and the shofar of the Jubilee year. What is interesting is that the verses in the rabbinic understanding actually imports into Rosh Hashanah something else. Besides the shofar, it imports something else which is very interesting because on Rosh Hashanah, we all know that we are sounding different sounds with the shofar. The Torah calls it zikron trua. The, t- the sound in the Chumash is called trua, a crying out. But when we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, so we are making, so the sounds we are uh, producing on Rosh Hashanah we give them different names. Trua, the, 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 Torah, the word trua in the Torah, we interpret, we're not sure exactly what trua is in the Torah, so we, we have three different possible sounds for the, for the trua. That is what we call a trua, which is the short little staccato sound, those sounds, that we call a trua. Then we have a different trua, which we don't call trua, we call shvarim, the broken sound, which is the longer, sort of a sigh, that kind of sound. And then we, the Gemara says, we're not sure, maybe we should do both of them. So we have shvarim trua, third sound, in which we do both. Shvarim and then followed by a trua. Either followed with a break in between or no break in between. These are huge fights, by the way, whether you exactly had the sounds, the shima achat, the shima. Anyway, the Gemara comments that the opposite we don't do. True or shvarim that we don't do. Because, you know, that's not, the Gemara says that's not an appropriate sound. People don't cry. Whatever it is. But fundamentally, the Gemara's understanding of trua, it's not clear. What does trua mean? Which of these is the sound? 
but it's a broken, one way or the other, it's a broken sound. The Gemara understands it to be a broken sound, a kind of cry. In fact, the Targum on the Psukim, Yom Trua, Yom Achem, is Yom Yevava. Day of crying, day of weeping. So the shofar is understood by our tradition. First of all, understood that's a shofar, but that's one of the sounds we are making is a trua, zichron trua. But on Rosh Hashanah we make an additional sound as well, not just the trua, not just the broken sounds, but the way we sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is that before the trua and after the trua there's a plain sound, calls a a pshuta an unbroken sound, and the unbroken sound, we have another term for it, it's called a, uh, a uh, tekiah. So the sounds of Rosh Hashanah then, tekiah, let's say, tekiah, trua, tekiah, tekiah, shvarim, tekiah, tekiah, shvarim, trua, tekiah, these are the sounds of the shofar. So the Gemara, again, tries to somehow read out of these verses, it's hard to see how it's in the verses, I'll get to that, but we have these sounds, tekiah, tekiah, those are the sounds that we are producing on, through the shofar on, on Rosh Hashanah. Where did the Gemara take this from? Where do we get on Rosh Hashanah this idea of pshuta, of a tkiah, and a, uh, and, a, and a trua? So where we get it from is very interesting. Because the truth of the matter is, when you read the psukim, it says nothing about a tkiah. It says trua, zichron trua, yom trua. But where in the world do they get the tekiah from? What is this about? What is this tekiah versus the trua? So actually we have it somewhere, yeah? I just read somewhere that the tekiah is associated with Yom Kippur. And somehow it's related to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. The, 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 the Yom Kippur sounds, of course, in the, in the, in the Yovel we have it. In the Yovel we have the shofar. That's true. Now this sim- because the shvarim is basically trua. The Torah calls it a trua. What we call the shvarim is trua. Right, different interpretations. What is the trua of the Torah? The trua is taken from a broken sound to break. To roeim b'shevet, you break them. So the word, so the so the trua, shvarim, shvarim trua, shvarim tekiah, tekiah, trua. These are all broken sounds. But the unbroken sound, where's that coming from? So the truth of the matter is we have it in the Chumash, but not with Shofar. We do have one place in the Chumash where the Chumash contrasts Tekiah on one hand and Shua on the other. That's in the Torah. And that's chapter 10 of the book of Bamidbar. In chapter 10 of Bamidbar, there we have, interestingly enough, Tekiah and a Shua. But not with the Shofar, but with the trumpets, with the Chatzotzrot. Moshe is commanded in chapter 10 of Bamidbar to make two silver trumpets and to sound them on certain occasions. When are they sounded? So it's like this. If you look in the Chumash, you see that in chapter 10 it says Moshe should make two chatzot of one piece and they have two functions, says the Torah. On page, Bamidbar, page 304 in this translation, chapter 10, verse 1, verse 2. Make for yourself two silver trumpets and they serve to summon the community and to set the divisions in motion. So the two different functions are, you make the sound when people are, have to move in the desert, you're announcing them they're going to be moving, or you're gathering people in for a meeting. So the Torah says the following. It's funny that 
I've seen virtually no reference to these verses, even though it's so obvious when you read them that that's what our tradition is actually importing to Rosh Hashanah. It says the following, Vitaku Bahain, when you, when you blow them both with taku, tekiyah, then the whole congregation meets. It's a community meeting. But you only make a tekiyah sound with one of the two, then the princes come to meet, the chieftains meet. That's as far as the tekiyah is concerned. What about as far as the truah is concerned? In verse number five, utikatem truah. But if you make a truah, if you make the broken sound, right? If they translate short blasts. If you make the truah sound, then the, the machanot, the, 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 the tribes divided into four groups, then they start to travel. First, the one on the east side travels. Utkatem truah sheinit. Then you make a second truah sound. Then the ones on the south when you travel in the desert, you make the truer sound. But when you gather the people, then you make the tkia sound. So here in the Chumash you have, black on white, the difference between a tkia and a truer. So what actually is the difference between them? So what's interesting is that when you continue to read the Chumash, the Chumash makes the following point. This is true in the desert. So what happens when you leave the desert? What happens when you possess the land? So the Torah says the following. When you possess the land, when you're in your land and there's a war, when there's a war, you shall make the truest sound with the trumpets. You will be remembered by God. And you will be delivered from your enemies. Here we have an interesting, you have the word truah, and you have the word veniz kartem, you shall be remembered. The rabbi, the rabbinic tradition, heard this and remembered the Torah's description of Rosh Hashanah, zichron truah, zichron truah. So that's when, you, when you're going to war. However, the next verse says, "Uviyom simchatchem uvamoadechem uvarashechatchem." On days of rejoicing, <laughs> on your festivals, on the new, the new moons, utekatem b'chatzotzrot. Then you make the tekiya sound with the chatzotzrot. Alalotechem v'yazivcheshamechem. So the Torah distinguishes again between true and tekiya. The truer is when you're going to battle. It means a time of danger when you're calling for God to help us. Right? To, to remember us and for good, then you make the truer sound. But in days of rejoicing in your festivals, when you bring the sacrifices, then you also sound the trumpets, but not the truer sound, but the tekiya sound. Yep. Of course, totally, of course. But, but we still have to understand the difference between tekiah and truah. So it sounds like this. The difference is that the truah sound, you, sign, you sound when there's danger. What kind of danger? So there are different dangers in life. War is one danger. But there's another danger, actually, in the, which is in the desert when you travel. 
Traveling is dangerous on many levels, but among other things, when you're traveling, you don't have a place. So if, you're not, if you don't have a place, if you are not in a place, you're nowhere. You're moving from one direct transitional moments. Those are dangerous moments. So when in moments of danger, in transitional moments, says the Chumash, that you make the truer sound. But when you're bringing people together in the desert, you bring people together, which is related to Simcha, coming together in joy, actually in the Chumash related. The temple is a place of joy. It's also the place where, where, where you gather together. So in those places, when there's festive moments, moments of rejoicing, so you mark that, the Chumash says, not with the truah, but with its kia. So on Rosh Hashanah, the rabbinic tradition understands Rosh Hashanah to be both tekiah and also truah. There's something very deep about this, which is, on one hand, it sees Rosh Hashanah, the tradition sees Rosh Hashanah, zichron truah, as somehow danger. Um, we're in a place of, 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 of danger. Now, what is the danger of Rosh Hashanah? That's the question. The danger of Rosh Hashanah is uh, that it's ten days before Yom Kippur. The danger of Rosh Hashanah is that Yom Kippur is the day in which it is clear to us, and we are, in the words of the Chumash, afflicting ourselves, that we are, we are in great danger, and the danger in the Chumash is that the temple, which allows God to be present amongst us, has become, con- become contaminated through our sins, and therefore we require a ritual which, which allows the temple to be, to be purified. In the Chumash, the Avod of Yom Kippur primarily is the service which purifies the temple and, allow God's, and allows God to remain amongst us. So the danger of Rosh Hashanah is understood by the tradition as it's a day which anticipates Yom Kippur. And I might add, if Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness, okay, then Rosh Hashanah becomes, in this context, a day of, day of, a day of judgment. So the danger of Rosh Hashanah the crying out of Rosh Hashanah, the truer, the broken sound, the brokenness is a function in, the, in, the, in our tradition of Rosh Hashanah being a Yom, Yom HaZikaron. It's interesting, by the way, that in our prayers, it's about the classical prayers. Everybody should know the classical prayers. Whatever you do is your business, but you have to know the classical prayers. That's your, so Yom HaZikaron is the term, the Torah, the, 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 our liturgy calls Rosh Hashanah Yom HaZikaron. The day of remembrance. That's the that's the term that the Chumash, that the liturgy uses for for Rosh Hashanah, and the central service of Rosh Hashanah is called Zichronot. There are three main pieces to the service. Hope we get there. And the middle one is Malchiyot, God's kingship, is the first piece of it. The last piece is Shofarot, the the shofar means God's means revelation, God's presence. And the middle section of Rosh of the davening. It's called Zichron Note, Remembrances. And the day of Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron. So the broken sound, the broken sound of Rosh Hashanah has to do with being in danger. That's the, that's the true one. On the other hand, the tradition insists that to combine with the true one, you must say, Pshuta Lifonel or Pshuta Liacharela. Before every true sound, however we understand the true one, there's a, an unbroken sound before and an unbroken sound afterwards. The unbroken sound in the Chumash, as opposed to the Truah, is a sound that you make when you bring people together. You're coming together. Hakil, the whole community comes together. 
or the leadership comes together. And when you come into the land, on days of rejoicing, then you make the tekiah sound. So it sounds like Rosh Hashanah, that was my introduction, is not just preliminary to Yom Kippur, but it's also it's the ultimate Rosh Chodesh. And the Torah combines that with the day of Simcha. Now what is the Simcha of Rosh Hashanah? The Simcha of Rosh Hashanah, which I suggested is the prefiguring or the foreshadowing of Sukkot, but the Simcha of Rosh Hashanah is understood by our tradition, and here the study of the comparative Near Eastern stuff is very interesting. It's very striking, actually, when you read this. It's quite amazing. But the idea that Rosh Hashanah is the day in which God is actually enthroned as king, and that the shofar is a kind of regal instrument which, which, which enthrones God, and that the enthronement of God is a, is a great joy. So it has actually the enthronement of God, if you think about it, in terms of our liturgy, contains two, two elements which in a way are contradictory. Because on one hand, the enthronement of God as king is, is cause for joy. But on the other hand, what do you mean God is king? What, what, what do kings do? What is God doing on Rosh Hashanah? So one of the things that kings are doing when the people wanted a king in the book of Samuel, the people turned to Samuel the prophet. He wasn't so crazy about the idea, but they said, we want a king, Ushvatanu Malkeinu, a king who will judge us. It means we, but it means judge. One of the roles of the king is to be a judge, to be a magistrate, to make, to make laws, or to, or to carry out law. So the king, God is king of Rosh Hashanah, is a God who sits in, uh, in uh, judgment. And that's cause for trouble, because the God is judge is very problematic for us, because there's no way out of the judgment. God knows everything, and therefore we, we're in trouble. So from one perspective, the enthroning of God is, is, is joyous and calls for tekiah. It's interesting, by the way, at least the Ashkenazic custom, I can't speak for the Sephardim, but the Ashkenazim, the Sephardim have a different custom, but the Ashkenazim are sounding the shofar in different places in the, in the service. Maximally four different places. There is, a, there is a custom to sound the shofar after we read the Torah. That's a, that's a late custom, actually. Late, I mean, it's more than a thousand years old, but the Mishnah doesn't, the Mishnah doesn't know from it. That's clear. When I mean, you talk about the Mishnah of Rosh Hashanah, the Mishnah does not know from sounding the shofar after, after the Torah reading. The Mishnah only knows from sounding the shofar in combination with davening, Musaf. That's the Mishnah. The Mishnah doesn't know from anything else. The Mishnah talks, talks about the blessings of the shofar, the blessings they're talking about are the blessings of the, of the service of Musaf, Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofrot. The Mishnah doesn't know at all from any other time of sounding the shofar. The sounding of the shofar before Musaf, which is a very problematic custom that we have, which is why, for example, there's a big fight. What is the blessing that you make when you sound the shofar? Big fight. The medievals have tremendous fight about this. The Rambam, Rabbeinu Tam. The reason there's a fight it's very simple, because we have no tradition about sounding shofar before Rosh Hashanah. It's based on the Gemara earlier in Rosh Hashanah. It's not in the Mishnah. And it's not clear what the Gemara means. In any event, so, but, but the Jewish practice is to sound the shofar before Musaf, in a way undercutting the Musaf. It's a very strange custom. 
Then there are two traditions of whether we sound the shofar only in the repetition of the musaf or even in the silent shvona esrei. Where I pray, we, we do both. We, we say both. And then there's another tradition, very tra- tradition, to sound the shofar as we're walking out of the synagogue, or we do it after after after, after musaf in the middle of Kaddish or whatever. That's a that's a great different. But the basic, <coughs> the, actually universal, I don't know what's universal anymore, but the traditions, what to sound it before Musaf and to sound it in Musaf are very interesting. The Ashkenazim who recite, who sound the shofar before Musaf, before we Ashkenazim sound the shofar, we recite one of the Psalms. Which Psalm do we recite? Ramnatseh Uvne Korach Mizmar. Was it 47? I think it's Psalm 47. Which these psalms are important because they give an insight into how the, our tradition understood the shofar, at least the shofar before Musaf. Ramnatseh Uvne Korach Mizmar. I'll read it in English. It's on page 1468. All you people, clap your hands, raise a joyous shout for God. Hebrews, for God is most high, is awesome, great king over the earth. God subjects peoples to us, sets nations at our feet, shows the heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom God loves, Selah. God ascends amidst acclamation. Hashem bekol shofar, to the blast of the horn. Sing, O oh, sing to God, sing to our king. God is king over the earth. Sing a hymn. God reigns over nations. God is seated on God's holy throne. The great of the peoples are gathered together, the retinue of Abraham's God. For the guardians of the earth belong to God. God is greatly exalted. That's the, that's the, the cusp says seven times. And it has one basic theme before we sound the shofar. It's the proclamation that God is king of the, of the, of, of the universe, king of the world. There's one king, and God is the king. It's an enthronement psalm. Yeah. Uh, with, with reference to God as the king here, you introduced the notion of the shofar in your terms was it is a regal instrument. Yes. And yet on the other hand, you've taken us to the Hats of Throat and, and, and with its detail there. Yes. It would seem to be counterintuitive to say that the shofar, the, the ram's horn, yes. is the regal instrument as opposed to the Hats of Throat. No? Well, it's a good question, actually. The truth of the matter is that in the temple they sounded together. And not only that, the strangest thing is of the verses that we are reciting in our prayer in Musaf, which are 30 verses, the last verse doesn't mention Shofar at all. At least the Ashkenazic tradition, it mentions the Chatzotrot. This verse of the Chatzotrot is the 30th verse, the last verse that we are reciting in the section we call Shofarot mentions the Chatzotrot. Uviyom Simchatchem, the verse I cited before. Uviyom Simchatchem, Uvmoadechem, Uvroshechotchem, Utekatem Bachatzotrot. Aotechem. The Ramban objected. He said, what do you mean? That's not for Rosh Hashanah. Maybe. Good objection. But the fact of the matter is, the Jewish people have rejected the Ramban, at least most of them. And we are saying the verse about Chatzotrot, which also has something else. It's not just that it's regal in the sense that it's. It's also about singing to God. It, it, it's, a, it's about Shira. In other words, in God's presence, in the king's presence, we are, we are singing. Zamer Elohim Zameru. So it's part of the orchestra. 
the shofar, the chatzotro, the instruments of a larger orchestra. So the, my point is <coughs> that the basic idea, the, the psalm we are reciting before shofar, points to the idea that the shofar is the instrument which is present at, the, at God's coronation. But the shofar that we are sounding in the Shemona Esrei, that may be different. Because there, it's the shofar is integrated into the Shemona Esrei itself. It's interesting, by the way, that the end of the section we call shofar wrote, I, we, we speak of God who, who hears the sound of the shofar. God, you listen carefully to the truah. There we single out the truah, the broken sound, and that's the other aspect of, 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 of Rosh Hashanah, which is the truah, the, 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 the broken sound of those who are in, in, in great danger. And the danger of Rosh Hashanah is understood rabbinically that the king is also a judge. And if we, we are suddenly find ourselves being judged, then what do you say? So basically, the shofar has, has two elements to it. Right. Well, the chatzot do have both dimensions in terms of they signal danger. The chatzot are sounded in times of war, <coughs> in times of displacement. Yeah, so the chatzot, the rabbis have read into Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash the verses from the chatzot but there's something very profound about this, very basic. I mean, it's, it's obviously true. You feel it on Rosh Hashanah. The different communities celebrate Rosh Hashanah differently. Some communities emphasize the fear the dread of Rosh Hashanah. And some communities emphasize the joy of Rosh Hashanah. But I would say all communities have, are, are, are accepting the idea, I think, that there are two different elements to Rosh Hashanah. The question is which of the two predominates. Is it the festival that predominates or is it the fear and the judgment that predominates? That's a good question. Different communities operate differently. Yeah? Right. And people, students actually in Boston, uh, J.J. Shatter specifically, and he said that he had both I know that. He spoke about that many times, by the way. He also spoke about the, in a way, trying to move from one to the other, trying to sweeten the judgment, and whatever. I can't, you're 100% correct. He spoke about this a lot. Uh, it's not, my point is that the, the which I'm sure he probably I mean, said as well, which is. Right. Exactly, because it has, it has both elements which, in a way, are contradictory, and that's exactly the problem of Rosh Hashanah. It's not a problem, it's a reality of Rosh Hashanah. My point is that the day of Rosh Hashanah is, in a way, can, is re- well represented by the chauffeur itself, these two aspects of Rosh Hashanah. Already present within the within the shofar itself. Yes. To, to bolster your point, uh, perhaps the unusual lashon of Allah Elohim the Truah. I would have put it with Kiyah, but based on what you said, with the Gemara in Tzayin Abad Aleph, Mishum Rabbi Akiva, Machiyot Tzayin Aleichem Zechrono, which is the, the dread stuff, which is the broken stuff. The lashon is Sheyala, therefore Nechem Lefanai Lishova. Right. Right away, we mentioned the 
Right, but so the challenge is somehow to somehow we'll get, this is what I want to discuss now. The challenge is how to move from the day of judgment from our perspective. How do you get the festivity? How do you move to a festive day in light of the fact that we are faced with with a with this judgment? And that is, I think, the basic theme of the middle section of the of the service of Rosh Hashanah. We call Zichron Note. The day is called Yom Hazikaron, and the middle section of Rosh Hashanah. It's called Zichron. Let me just start with some basics here. And because it's very sad that, unfortunately, even though many, many Jews go to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, but unfortunately, in many places, they don't really understand what's going on because nobody's explaining it. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to figure it out yourself. Let me just say a couple of preliminary, very basic things about the service of Rosh Hashanah, and then we'll deal with what I think is the central service of Rosh Hashanah with Zichronot. First of all, you have to understand that the way the traditional service is set up, the, the main piece of the davening is always called the Amidah, we call the Shemona Esrei. That's the, sta- the standing up, that's the main service of, of all prayer, all prayer service. Prayer, in fact, the word prayer, very often in the uh, tradition, has a very narrow meaning, not of any communication to God, but rather specifically of what we call the Shemona Esrei, the Amidah. The Amidah has, there are two kinds of Amidahs, basically. I mean, they all begin and end the same way. They begin with a set of blessings. They all begin with three blessings, and they end with three blessings. That's, you know, that's universal. What's in the middle is the question. So first of all, on a normal day, regular normal day, not a holiday, there's what's called the Shmona Esrei, which means, the, means 18. The reason it's called 18 is that at one point there were 18 blessings. It's three, then 12, then three. Then there was a 19th blessing that was added, so there are actually 19 blessings. But in any event, it takes the form of blessings. We're not getting into the specifics of what is a blessing. It's a technical term and a non-technical term, but our prayer service consists of a set of blessings. During the, during the week, during the non-holy days, there are 13 intermediate blessings in every Shemona Esri. When you get to Shabbat and the holidays, it's different. Shabbat and the holidays, there are a grand total of seven blessings. There's three in the beginning, there's three at the end, and there's one in the middle. The Nusach is different. On Shabbat it ends with Baruch HaTashem Mekadesh Shabbat. On the festivals it's typically Mekadesh Yisrael V'Hazmanim. On Yom Kippur it's Mekadesh Yisrael V'Yom HaKippurim, and it could take three hours to say it, but it's one blessing. There's always seven blessings, with one exception. There's one holiday that from a structural standpoint is completely different than everything else, and that's Rosh Hashanah. And not all the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, but the Musaf, this additional prayer of, of Rosh Hashanah, the Musaf service of Rosh Hashanah, so that has nine blessings. It has three in the beginning, three at the end, it has three in the middle. And the three blessings in the middle have names. The first is called Malchiot, God's kingship. The second is called Zichronot, remembrances. And the third is called shofar. Each one has its own blessing. It begins has a, and has a blessing at the end. And these are three brachot. And these are the three basic themes of Rosh Hashanah. God's kingship, this remembrance we'll get to today, and the shofar. Interesting is that if you say, what is the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah? So the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah is that God is king. 
And we know this from the blessing, because the basic blessing of Rosh Hashanah, in all the services of Rosh Hashanah, Baruch HaTo Hashem, Melech Al Kol Aretz, Mikadesh Yisrael V'Yom HaZikaron, God is King of the whole world, who sanctifies Israel in the Day of Remembrance. So Rosh Hashanah is called the Day of Remembrance, Zikaron. But the blessing is always combined with God's kingship. So on Rosh Hashanah, the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah is that God is king. That's the very basic idea of Rosh Hashanah. Now, let me just get to this idea of God being king, just to one, what that means. It's actually, from, a certain, from our perspective, I'll, well, I'll speak for myself. From, from my perspective, I think it's probably from our perspective. Rosh, Rosh Hashanah, in that sense, is a difficult day. Yom Kippur is easy. Very easy day to understand. Yom Kippur is all about us. It's about repentance. So it's about human possibility, human potential, right? That's what Yom Kippur is about. It contains confessions, long confessions and short confessions, prayers for forgiveness. It's all about the opportunity of Yom Kippur to sort of remake ourselves and to move forward and to rid ourselves of mistakes of the past and to think about aspirationally what we could be accomplishing during the next year, etc. That's easy. But Rosh Hashanah, actually, it's what, is, what is not there is so striking. If you ask someone, what is Rosh Hashanah about? Oh, it's about repentance. That's not true. It is about repentance indirectly, that is true. But it's certainly not about repentance because word about repentance, our prayer service would would reflect it. We'd have slichus on Rosh Hashanah. We would have confessions on Rosh Hashanah. We'd have requests for forgiveness on Rosh Hashanah. We have none of that on Rosh Hashanah, which leads to the inevitable conclusion that Rosh Hashanah is not primarily about repentance. In fact, I would add it's not primarily about us, actually. Rosh Hashanah is a day in which God is enthroned as king. That's the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah. Now, this has implications for us on the most fundamental level. I think it's the most important holiday. If you ask me, for us, it's the most important holiday. Because it makes the following suggestion, which I'm sure is something that for most people never, they never think of this possibility. <laughs> Namely, that the world is actually not about us at all. It's about being in God's world. We're, we're here, we are here to, to serve God. It's not our world. It's not about us at all. That's the idea of Rosh Hashanah. This is a very important idea. No. We, no, no, whatever, Girsa. We have to be aware. We have, no, of course, but we have to be aware of that. It's the awareness. It re does require an awareness, and for us, it requires a deep awareness because it's not the way we see the world. We don't see the, we see the world as ours. In fact, and I speak about myself, that's the way we study the Chumash. We study the Chumash, the exodus from Egypt was to give us the freedom to make good choices and to, you know, to... That's one way to read the book of Exodus. There's another way to read the book of Exodus, which is at least equally plausible, if not more so, which is, it's not about that at all. It's about give, giving us the opportunity to serve God. God took us out of Egypt for one purpose, to build a Mishkan and to serve God. It's not about human potential. Yes, it is true that a, a free person has a better service free person can fully serve God because we can serve God with, our, with the totality of our being. But when you read the book of Exodus, it lends, it's a book that lends itself to two alternate, and they're both true, two very different readings. 
and the idea of Rosh Hashanah as a day in which God is king, which reminds us we are, we are living in God's world, phrases that appear throughout our Bible. It's not your world, it's my world. That's a very important point. That's very central to Rosh Hashanah. So let's leave it at that. Now, as far as what kings are doing, so the day is called Yom HaZikaron, and the second section, the first section is about God is king, whatever that means, not for now. But the second, the middle blessing, is called Zichronot, remembrances. So let's, pay, let's turn our attention now in the time that we have to the themes that emerge from this section called Zichronot. Yes, please. I would say chosenness, which I think comes through in the Davi. We'll get to it in a minute. But the way I see it as, it has to do with the, uh, an assignment. <laughs> People who are chosen means we, are, we, have, we have the opportunity and responsibility. We're put on earth to serve, which means there's no, and this is where it gets very interesting, we are all put on earth to serve, but there are many ways to serve. It would be very foolish for me to assume that I know the best way you can serve because everybody has different gifts. So the trick in life is to figure out, not easy, how we are being called to serve. Everybody is called in a different way. That's my understanding of, of chosenness. It's a, it's a calling to serve. Each one has to figure out in which, which way she, has, she serves. So that's, that's not so simple. How do, you, how do you know, you know? But this idea of, of, of the calling is present in the Zichron notice. So let's take a look at this, at this, Daphne. The, 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 the text, let me say the following. The text of Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot in the Hebrew, the translation is not bad either, but it's glorious. It's, it's known in the, Gemara has a term for it, Tzikiyato Debe Rav. It's a text that was composed by the house of Rav. It's an ancient text. And the Hebrew is magnificent. It's ancient and magnificent Hebrew. And this is from the, from the greatest of our prayers. This is, this is the and it contains within it, I would say, some of the most fundamental Jewish ideas. These are, I would say, the rabbinic, some of the basic rabbinic ideas about the human role, responsibility, is to be found in what we call zichronot. So it's in the Musaf, Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, these nine blessings are only recited in the Musaf service. I don't know if there's, if there's uh, synagogues that don't say Musaf on Rosh Hashanah. I don't know what they do, but, but, but anyway, problem. But in any event, it's interesting, by the way, something else is very striking about Rosh Hashanah. Everything's striking about Rosh Hashanah. And that is on Rosh Hashanah, I said we have nine blessings on Rosh Hashanah, only in the Musaf. But at night of Rosh Hashanah, in the morning of Rosh Hashanah, at Mincha, we have only seven blessings. It's very strange. I've never heard of such a thing that the number of blessings depends on the service. That's very bizarre, actually. So if we had more time, I would 
spends a good deal of time on explaining how we came to this, what this is about, how the medievals understood it. It's very interesting. In any event, the nine blessings are in the Mosef. Of course, after each of the blessings, we sound the shofar. You say Malchios, you blow the shofar. You say Zichronos, you blow the shofar. You say Shofarot, you blow the shofar. Yes, you want to say? That's true, the Balamar. The Balamar of Inuzrachi Alevi said you've said nine blessings. Basically, it's what you say nine blessings in all every service. But that's a Das Yachid. That is true. That is the Balamar. Perfectly logical opinion. That's the Balamar. Okay, anyway. Yes? Okay, so the number, the number of sounds you make? Okay. So the number of sounds you make. Okay, I'm just going to have to answer very quickly because we, we have so much to talk about. We have it's like this: the in the 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 medievals basic medieval tradition was to sound on Rosh Hashanah 40 sounds. Very strange tradition. They would sound 30 sounds before before most. They basically sounded the shofar before the Shemona Esrei, as as we do today. They sounded the shofar after they read the Torah. They would sound the shofar. Inside the Shemona Esrei, the basic medieval position, as, as uh, described by the Balayat Tosvot, is they would only make a grand total of ten sounds total in the Musaf service. Three, three, and four. Tkiyah, Shvarim, Trua, Tkiyah is four. Tkiyah, Trua, Tkiyah, Tkiyah, Shvarim, Tkiyah, for a total of ten. That was it. Very strange. So the Tosafists themselves were very bothered by this. How could you do such a thing? You'd have to be in Yotzeh. Because fundamentally, the way it works is like this. The, the Gemara assumes that you need a minimum of nine sounds. Three times. Tkiyah, trua, tkiyah, tkiyah, trua, tkiyah, tkiyah. But you don't know what a trua is. Is a trua we call a trua? Or is a trua a shvarim? Or is a trua a shvarim trua? So from the nine, if you do the math, you get 30. That's called shloshim kolot. And that's the custom we have. Before Muslim, we sound to make 30 sounds. So the medievals were very bothered. How can you make 30 sounds beforehand? But inside the Shemona Esrei, you have the blessings, Malchi, Zichron, and Shofrot, you should need 30 more sounds. So the answer was, you do. That's true. So they got from 30, they got 60. Then, in the Sefer called the Aruch, which is a very old book, about the year 1000, it's basically a, a dictionary of sorts, but it explains various terms in the, in the rabbinic tradition. The Aruch cites another minute, which Tosfus quotes, which is the main Ashkenazic tradition, which is to make an additional 40 sounds or so after the service, 100 sounds. And the 100 sounds are based on a midrash about Sisra's mother. Sisra was the general, the Canaanite general, who was killed by, uh, by the Jews in the battle of Barak and Tevorah. The end of the story says Sisra's mother was waiting for it to come back from the battlefield, and she's looking out the window, and she's wondering whether he's going to come back, and she's crying, it's based on the number of words over there. They got this idea of 100 sounds. That's how you get 100. There are all kinds of other permutations I can't get into now, by the way, but the basic Ashkenazic, the a basic, I would say nowadays, in most, let's say, Orthodox synagogues, certainly in actually traditional synagogues, they are probably making a grand total of 100 sounds. From 9, you got 30. the 30, you got 40. 40, you got 60. 60, you got 100. Who knows what it'll be in 10 years from now, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, in any event, there is another question about whether you sound the chauffeur 
in the silent prayer as well. So it'll be 30, 30, 30, then only 10 at the end. Anyway, those are the basic, the basic positions. Now let's, that, then, let's get to the Zichronot section. I, we need more time. What can I tell you? <coughs> so it's, it's like this. Zichronot has three basic themes. This is central to Rosh Hashanah. Now, okay, in this particular, in the Adela Machzor, it's on page 136. In this, in this one. I don't know, they're different maps, but people have different maps over it. This one is 136. Now, the way each of these three sections work is the following. This is something basic to Rosh Hashanah, unusual. And that is, in each of the three sections, Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot, there's some kind of exposition. There's a text which says something, but it says something through the integration of, of, of biblical verses. And biblical verses, a minimum of ten verses in each of the three sections. And not only that, <coughs> this is all found in the Gemara, Rabbi Akiva's position that we follow, and the verses themselves can be broken down in the following way. The first three verses are always from the Torah. The next three verses are from the Holy Writings, which in our case is the Psalms. And the last three verses are from the Prophets. And the tenth verse is from the Torah. So it's three, 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 and one. Always in that order. Three from the Torah, three from the Psalms, three from the Prophets, and the tenth verse from the Torah. Tilim. So the, the question, of course, one can ask is, why three, 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 and one? Why not four, three, and three? Four from the Torah? And the answer is the following. Because the three, 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 and one, the one is different from the first nine. Because the first nine are found in the exposition, which describes something about the day, something about God or whatever. But the tenth verse is actually connected to the end of the blessing, which is about some kind of request. The end of the blessing, the way it breaks down, you hope you'll see for yourself, that the end of it is always asking for something. For example, Malchiot. First, it describes the fact, God is king, whatever that means, nine verses. And then the end, <laughs> God reign over the whole world. Right? So that's the, the same thing the second time. Zichronot, God should remember us. right? God should remember us for good. That's the request. And the last one, Shofarot, which is about revelation, Tekabe Shofar Godol Cheruteno, son the Shofar of Shofar of, of, of freedom, the Shofar of redemption. So that's the three, 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 and the one. Now, what is what what is what is Zichronot about? So, how much time do we have now? What time is it now? Twenty after. We have twenty-five minutes. Okay, so we'll see what we can do in twenty-five minutes. Okay, first it's like this. The first it begins with the words Atazochem Maseolam. God is remembering. Masay Olam, that was from, from that was made from eternity. Upokeid ko Yitzure Kedem and mindful of all that has been formed from old. The word Zocher and the word Pokeid are typically understood as synonyms. They're not exactly there are no two words that mean exactly the same thing. I was discussing yesterday with the Wendy Amsterdam this Zocher and Pokeid. Zocher in the Bible typically is a positive term. It's 
remembering for good, remembering with mercies. So say the book of Pokade is different. Pokade has typically a negative side to it as well. Judgments. It's, it's positive, it's redeeming, but it has with it something, another side to it. It's, in any event, that's a separate conversation. But God is remembering. What does it mean that God remembers? And we say God remembers all the hidden things, right? From the beginning of time. And there's no forgetfulness. And nothing is hidden. What does God know? What does God remember? At God remembers all that was done. But also the person, all created beings. No one can hide from God. Everything is known. The past is known. God can see into the future, to the end of time. God can seize everything, the past and the future, and every spirit, every soul shall be visited. And all works, all works are remembered. And then the composer of this prayer says the following, This fact was made known from the beginning of time. From long ago you revealed this, this secret. <coughs> this day, this day of Rosh Hashanah, is the beginning of your creations. <coughs> yes. Yes. No doubt, of course. This is all day. This is all dangerous. Nothing can be more dangerous than these verses. This is because, as we'll see in a moment, we'll, we'll get to it in one one minute. This day is the remembrance of the first day. It says, "Kichok Yisrael Hu." It's a statute for Israel. Mishpat Rehohe Yaakov and a day of judgment for the God of Jacob. Now the question is, what does that line mean? It's a very important line, and it's not at all clear what it means. I guarantee most people will say it, I have no idea what it means, actually. But I'll tell you what I think it does mean, which is this. It's based on a medrash. The, the composer of this uh, prayer is recalling a very important midrash about Rosh Hashanah. According to, the, according to our tradition, it appears in several places, what is Rosh Hashanah? What happened on the first Rosh Hashanah? So the first Rosh Hashanah, what we call Aleph Tishrei, the first day of Tishrei, the seventh month, the first day, in our tradition is the sixth day of creation. According to the tradition, the world is created on the, on the 25th day of the month of Elul. The sixth day of creation is the creation of the human being. And then the Midrash continues. And on the day that the human being was created, the human being sinned. There's even a discussion which hour it was. And 
on the day the human being is sinning, Adam and Eve, they are judged. They are judged on the day they are created. And the day they are created is the sixth day of creation, which is Aleph Tishrei. It means that the first Rosh Hashanah was the day of judgment. This is what the poet here is recalling. Zehayom Tchilat Maasecha Zikaron Liyom Rishon. And that Israel actually accepts the judgment. In other words, we are entering into Rosh Hashanah, says the poet, with an, with an awareness of the day of judgment and an acceptance, actually. Chokul Mishpat. It's a statute. It's an ordinance. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it happens at a fixed time. So we, we know we are entering, in a way, reliving, one might say, the experience of the first human beings who on the day they were born sinned and were also judged. In other words, one would say that the person that is being recalled over here in the beginning of this service is none other than the first human being, which is Adam. So that it, begins with, it begins with Adam. It begins with... Um, and Adam represents judgment. That's how it begins. The day of Rosh Hashanah, so Zichronot, we mean God remembers. Zichronot means one thing. It means judgment. The day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. And then now the, the, the poem continues, and what, who is judged on this day? Medinot And concerning the, the, the Medinot, it's interesting the term here is Medinot. Medinot is a term that appears typically in the book of Esther. Right? 127 Medinot. And the word Medina, he made the suggestion to somebody, he said, it's true. He told me he's, he's, a, he's a, a grammarian, he says, true. That the word Medina is related to the word Din. Actually, and actually he said that in, 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 uh, in, in Arabic, it's also that way. Because the book of Esther is all about Din, Dasva Din, it's all about laws. So Medinot, on the Medinot, which here for the writer means, on states, those, those that will be judged. Not that had judgment, but will be judged. About nations, it, is, it can be said as well. Which will have peace and war, <coughs> famine and prosperity. And created beings are judged. To recall them for life and death. Who is not, who is not taken account of on this day? For the remembrance of all created beings comes before you. A person's actions, I would say, a person's assignment. Tafkid, a person's role. In other words, the judgment isn't just how many mitzvahs he did, how many bad things. It's another judgment. You were, caught, you were brought into this world to do something. Are you doing it? Or are you not doing it? Are you The assignment you've been given, are you... Are we fulfilling our assignment? Awilot mitzah de gaver. I would say the awilot, the, here they translate <coughs> deeds. The deeds of the human. Machshavot adam, the thoughts of the human. Vitachbu otav, and the machinations. Vitzrei malay ish, and the designs, right? And the, and the drives and desires of a, of, of a person. The workings of his imagination. Kavalt, I mean, was, what, what kind of judgment is this? So, so it's interesting, by the way, is the introduction into the service of Medinot, nations. 
the judgment is not just individuals. Interesting, by the way, something else. There's not one word here about, about anything Jewish. Not a word. The terms of briot, yitzur, these are all terms taken from Genesis. Adam. Adam wasn't a Jew. Adam was a... No, that, that is true. That's for us. We are entering into this. We Jews enter into the judgment. I mean, in terms of what God is doing, it's not a word. God is judging Midinot. God is judging Yitzur. God is judging Briot. These are all general terms. And the one who we are recalling, Adam, and Adam was two things, by the way. Adam is a person, but Adam is also the world. Right? Adam is both. Adam is the first created being, is everybody. It's the whole world. So the world is judged, but so are individual people. And the judgment is not just what we do. That's what it sounds like. It's about our thoughts, our rationalizations, our imagination, our drives, desires, designs. And God knows everything. There's no forgetfulness. So I can say at this point, we attempted to close the book and to walk out. But what, what, what can you say? I mean, it's hopeless. It's a, hopeless, it's a totally hopeless situation. There's no hope here. <coughs> right? So now, this is the first theme. The first theme of Zichronot is the theme of judgment. And the one who represents judgment, of course, is Adam. Adam is the whole world. Adam is the individual. And the Adam, we, according to the Midrash, who sinned shortly after being created. It wasn't 100 years later. You know, he lives in 930 years. It wasn't 100, it was the first day. A few hours. How many hours is the question? So what's, what's going to be? So now we have one of the turning points. And the f- next line is very important. <laughs> Fortunate is the person who does not forget you. This is one of the great turning points of the davening. Happy is the one who doesn't forget you. Because the theme of Zichron is all about remembering. It's about God remembering us, which means judging. Right. This is, well, it says Ish. It doesn't even say Jews. Happy is the person. Happy is the person who doesn't forget God. The one who doesn't forget. Happy is the one. And why? For those who seek out, Risha, for those who seek God, they won't stumble. And then we, the, the, the poem says, here, there's a terrific play on the word Lidrosh, the word Drisha. So the word Drisha has two meanings. Yeah, it has two meanings. One is Drisha in the Torah, Drisha v'chakira. Lidrosh means to study very intensively. The term that's used in the Mishnah says, Drisha v'chakira, judge's responsibility is to Drisha v'chakira means to look at something very deeply. <coughs> That's one meaning of drisha. From that standpoint, drisha v'chakir is what a judge does. <coughs> but the word drisha has a different meaning, which is <coughs> is to search for something. It's requesting, but it's much more than requesting. It's searching. And we say those, God is, God is the judge, and God is an honest judge, so we're all basically cooked, basically nothing we can do. But there is hope. 
because Atadoresh Maaseku is a terrific play on God is Doresh, the actions of them. Doresh has two meanings. One is to look at them carefully. That's not so good for us. But the other is to seek them out, to search. God is do, when you Doresh someone, you're searching for somebody. And Dorshech Eloi Koshegu. So now already we have some hope in the sense that those who are Doresh God, <coughs> those who are seekers and searchers <coughs> for God, is Doresh them. And now we have an example of who this could be. Someone that ascends the stage of Rosh Hashanah. One day in the year, this person is very important for us. The Gamet Noach Zacharta. Suddenly we mention somebody else. Noach. See, the first created being was Adam. So Adam represents judgment. <coughs> Unadulterated judgment. Judgment, punishment, and he's sent away. Exile, banishment, death, whatever. Gamet Noach Zacharta. Ah, Noah was different. Noah was someone who's seeking God, in the words of the text. He's describing the Chumash as a tzaddik, but walking with God. So then there's hope. Because because God's seeking out those people. It means there won't be just a straight out, very cold judgment. The judgment is tempered by God being Doresh. You're seeking someone. You means you're concerned about them. You love them or whatever. The word is Biava. God remembers them with love. And now we begin to quote our verses. And even though it says the world was being destroyed, but you judged him, right? with words of salvation and mercy when you brought the flood to destroy the whole world. But the memory of him came before you to multiply his seed. As it is written in the Torah, this is the first of the biblical verses. Remember, the first three verses are in the Torah. And we have a verse that describes God remembering Noah by Yizkar. The verses all have to have the word Zachar. God remembers Noah and all that were with him and God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the waters were stilled. So you have the, the idea, I would say, it's the opposite of, of the first creation. The first creation began with the first couple of verses, That was the first creation. That creation was undone. God destroyed that creation. But the second creation, the recreation of the world, the rebirth of the world, in which Noah is at the center, there the Ruach Elohim stills the, the raging waters by Yashoku Hamayim. That's the first verse. So Noah starts with Adam, who represents judgment, and then we move to Noah. What does Noah represent? I would say Noah represents, for this writer, what we call Hashkacha, God's providence, God's concern for the individual, maybe concern for the group. Noah is the world also. Noah is also the group of people. So not just Noah. It's his family, it's all the animals that are with him. It's just, right? So that Noah is going to rebuild the world, or create a new world, perhaps, mm-hmm. or rebuild the old world. It's called Hashkacha, Providence. So it starts with judgment, that's Adam. Then you move to Providence, that's Noah. So it's good. The problem with Noah is a very simple problem. The, Noah is not going to work for the, the composer of this prayer, 
is not satisfied with Noah. For the simple reason, Noah will work if you're a tzaddik, a tamim, and walking with God. Well, what about the rest of the shlepers? So what, what are we going to do? We, we, not Noah. Noah was one person in the generation. But what about the stam? What about the normal people? What about us? What's, what, what? So therefore we turn to now the basic theme of Rosh Hashanah. The basic theme of this service, which is zichronot means something else. It's not about judgment and it's not about providence, but the primary theme of this blessing is about covenant. And the person that represents the Brits, and that's the key to this end of this section, is not, yes, the hero of Rosh Hashanah. The hero in terms of the liturgy. There's one main person on Rosh Hashanah for us in the liturgy. Not in terms of the Torah readings, that's different. But in terms of the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, it is the hero of the day is, of course, Abraham. So Abraham is the hero. Get to this in a minute. And here you have, we begin with the covenant which is represented by the patriarchs, and, but it's primarily Abraham. And that's the next verse. God heard their cries, referring to Israel and Egypt. God remember the cries of their cries, the people's cries, the slaves in Egypt. They weren't perfect. They weren't sadik. They weren't tamim. They often didn't walk with God. They, most of the time they're complaining. Take us back to Mitzrayim so we can eat watermelons and fish or whatever it is. That's who we were in Egypt, in the desert. But God heard their cries also. Why? Because God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here, Abraham first. V'nemar, v'zacharti get b'riti Yaakov, v'yafet b'riti Yitzchak, v'yafet b'riti Abraham, Eskar, the last of the three biblical verses. Again, we mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the context of memory, in the context of the covenant. Here I would say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned together, the triumvirate, but as we'll see, Abraham is the key. That we'll see later on. That's how the blessing will end. The blessing will end, of course, with the, um, with the binding of Isaac. Okay. Now, this is, these are the three verses from the Torah. So, so far, let's, let's, leave, let's say the following. Interesting is that the three personalities, the three people who are central to this particular blessing, first is Adam, the second is Noah, and the third will be Abraham. That itself is rather remarkable, if we think about it. And <laughs> let me say the following, because we can't, time is running out on us over here. So the, the next three verses are verses from the Psalms. That's right. And the three verses after that are verses from the prophets, Avodecha and Vim. They're all very interesting. I can't get into that now. But let me just skip to the end of this section. At the end is always a request. That God should remember us for good. And God should remember us with a memory of, of salvation and mercies, right? And God should remember the covenant and the loyalty of the kindness and the oath. God should remember the promises that God made to Abraham at Mount Moriah in the story of the binding of Isaac. <coughs> and in particular, God should remember Abraham, who was, overcame his basic nature of being merciful to carry out God's will. He overcame his basic nature. So to God, you should overcome your basic nature. What is God's basic nature? 
What is God's seal? God's seal is truth. That's what we're saying. Basically, God is truth. But we ask God to overcome his basic nature and to employ the qualities of kindness, the same way Abraham overcame his basic nature. Basically, he's a kind person, a compassionate person. But he had to overcome, he was asked to, to overcome his basic nature to carry out God's will. <laughs> so we ask God to do the same, but in reverse. And then we end by saying, the end of this section, and we quote another verse. I will remember the promise, the covenant I made with, the, with those who came before when I took them out of Egypt. So that refers to the Jewish people in Egypt, the slaves. And we end with, <coughs> God, you remember all forgotten things. There's no forgetfulness. And you should remember with mercies the binding of Isaac. Blessed is God who remembers the covenant. So this is the third of the three themes of Zichronot. And this is the idea of covenant. The covenant is the way for us to survive the judgment. Now what does that mean, covenant? So covenant, I, I would formulate it this way. I don't think it means that because my, you know, <coughs> because my grandfather was a holy person, I should be, I should be, and I'm, I'm guilty. But let me off the hook because my grandfather was a holy person. He was such a tzaddik. To which I would say, if your grandfather was a tzaddik and you're such a rat, I'll give you ten times worse punishment. If your grandfather was a villain, I got it. But he was a tzaddik. So why should, I should get off because he's a tzaddik? That makes no sense. No, that means the, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean because he was a tzaddik. It means because in some sense I still, I still connect, a part of me connects to that, to that person. A part of me connects to the values that he espoused. And that's the idea of Israel and Egypt. Israel, it's not just because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because there's something about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we are connecting to. So the, to the extent that we are connecting to this, that's what we're saying. We still feel connected. We're part of this we're part of their, of, of their life. We see our lives as bound up with them. We're not on that level, but we see, our, we see ourselves as bound up with them and we aspire to be like them. We're part of that community, which is a community which goes way back in time. And therefore, when it goes way back in time, when the relationship is lasting for many years, you don't judge the way it is today because it's a long-term relationship. Every, every long-term relationship has many ups and downs. So we want to judge us, remember us in the, in the bigger context, in who we are, in the context of the covenantal community, to the extent that we are espousing the values, we believe in this, and we do our best. Of course, we, no, no one's, we're not tzaddik. We aspire to be, but we're not, understand we're not. But however, the idea of covenant is an all-embracing concept, and that's how we can escape the, the judgment. We can escape the judgment by being part of that, of that, of that eternal community, and the one who represents this on Rosh Hashanah is, of course, Abraham. And the event that we are recalling is Akedat Yitzchak, Baruch Hashem Zocher Abit. And we ask God, it's interesting, you know, it's so true, because we, have the, we humans have the ability to, uh, to uh, forget. Forgetting sometimes is very negative, because we forget, you know, all the IOUs, we can forget those things. On the other hand, it's hard to live in this world if you, can't, if you, if you don't forget. If you remember everything that happened, you never move forward, and you're connected to all the negatives of the past and the tragedies. 
So we ask God and Rosh Hashanah to be selective. We actually begin and end Zichron the same way. God knows everything. There's no forgetfulness before your throne. That's how it begins. Which signals doom in the beginning of the blessing, but at the end of the blessing, we are saying to God, there is no forgetfulness. But we want you to remember one thing in particular with mercy, which is the binding of Isaac. Because on the human level, it's so true. The things that we are remembering often are the things that have the greatest impact on us. Sometimes people get older, they forget a lot of things. They still remember often things from their, from their, from their youth. It's interesting what people remember. They were formative things in their lives, formative moments. Those we forget much less quickly. So we ask God to remember what for us is a formative moment in this covenantal relationship, which is Akedat Yitzchak. And it's interesting, something else to think about in terms of the, com- the artistry of this composition. There's a deep, deep truth over here about the Chumash. I, I came to this realization myself many years ago without that I realized that the, I've been preceded by the author of this, of this poem, which is, the day of Rosh Hashanah is about creation. That's what it's about. We are mentioning many times in the service that today is the beginning of the world. Hayom harat olam, we say many times. But the creation story is found in the book of Genesis. But how, over how many chapters long is the creation story of Genesis? For the composer of this poem, the answer is over the first 22 chapters. Because the world is created in the beginning of the book of Genesis, actually the two creation accounts, and then the world is recreated through Noah. That's another creation account. And then there's a further crea- recreation of the world because the world that's created in the beginning of Genesis, there are two accounts. <coughs> one is chapter one, the heaven and earth. But the second creation account is not about the heaven and earth. The second creation account is about a specific place, the Garden of Eden, the sacred space. And when the human being is banished from there, and then the world is destroyed and recreated, so Noah recreates the world. But Noah doesn't connect to sacred space. The one who connects to sacred space is actually Abraham, both in terms of his first command of Lechacha in chapter 12, and also in terms of the second Lechacha, go to the place that I will tell you, to Mount Moriah, to the holy place, to the future temple. So Abraham, when he goes to Mount Moriah, and he accomplishes, the, the, he succeeds in his, in his pilgrimage to Mount Moriah. He actually names the place when he reclaims Isaac. That becomes the sacred space. And that becomes, one might say, the second Eden. And that's when creation is actually fulfilled. So the one who completes creation through, the, through, through his ability to, to his accepting of God's commands, through his faith and I think through his perception, and he sees the ram from behind him. He, he knows, he understands what God really wants over here, which is not the end of the world, but rather a kind of redeemed world, a world in which there's a sacred space. That, in fact, is the end of the creation narrative in the book of Genesis. The one who understood this was the composer of this, of this, of this poem. So, Zichronot, the day of remembrance. This is awesome, actually. It's awesome in terms of pshat. I mean, it's just... You never read the Chumash the same. It's so true. That actually, this is what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's about God as creator. It's God's day. God is king. King means creator. God creates the world. But there is, and the human being's ability 
I would say, to perceive what God demands of us. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. <coughs> it's God's day. It's God's judgment. But do, do we understand God's demands? And the one who represents the understanding of God's demands, which allows them not just to function in the world, but one might say even to be partnered with God to, to, to rebuild this new world, is none other than Abraham. So that's the Zichronot. The Zichronot of judgment, Adam. And then the Noah. Noah represents providence. Okay, God will save the, those who seek out God. But how many are there? And then for the rest of us, it's about the creation of a, of a community who in a deep way feel part of this covenantal community and act accordingly and aspire to be this way. And the writer of the poem says, and the world in which we function, the world which God creates, yes, God created it, but the human being's ability to understand God's demands is what allows us to move forward on Rosh Hashanah. And the trick, of course, is to move from Adam to Noah and then to move to the Zohar Zohar Habrit to be part of this covenantal community. That's our challenge, I think, with the chauffeur is reminding us of the challenge to uh, connect to sacred moments and to connect to a community of, of seekers and a community which understands that they are commanded to, uh, to, uh, to create spaces in which God can be found in this world. That's my blessing to all of us. We should create spaces in which God can, is present.